This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. When Preservation Maryland launched the Campaign for Historic Trades, a national partnership with the National Park Service to accelerate historic trades training in America, we asked our colleagues who we should consider bringing onto our board to help advise us on these complicated issues. Without missing a beat, they said Lisa Sasser, and they were right. Lisa is a positive font of knowledge and someone who used her trowel and hammer to shatter the glass ceiling of trades training, a perfect person to talk to about trades training and the future of historic preservation. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're very excited to be joined by Lisa Sasser, who is a uh, preservation consultant with a long and accomplished career in historic architecture, historic trades, uh, and the National Park Service itself. And so um, we love to get to know our guests, um, their background, the upbringing, what got them interested in history and preservation. So um, Lisa, where does your story begin and how did you get so interested in this world of preservation history and the trades? Well, I was born and raised in Lubbock, Texas, and my mother was a professor in the College of Architecture at Texas Tech University for 41 years. And she was an art and architectural historian. So I kind of grew up immersed in art and art history, architectural history. And I remember playing in the uh, architecture design labs when I was a little kid. And the architecture students were very sweet to me and let me play with their models. And I thought that was really cool. And my father taught art and crafts in a uh, local middle school. And he always encouraged my interest in tools and making things and uh, put tools in my hand and encouraged me to build things and make things. So I sort of uh, gravitated to that from a very early age. And it was always sort of assumed that I would go into architecture school, which I did. But in the uh, summer of my sophomore year, I got a job working at the uh, Ranching Heritage Center of the Texas Tech University Museum, which was an outdoor living history museum with uh, buildings moved from all over the state of Texas. It represented various periods and uh, styles of Texas ranching architecture. And I became extremely interested in uh, old buildings and the stories they told and got to witnessed some of the tradespeople that worked on them, stonemasons and carpenters. So I was really, really taken with that and decided pretty early that I wanted to concentrate on preservation. So, I mean, you got involved in in trades and preservation, I don't want to say at the beginning of the modern movement, but certainly early on, right? I mean, you know, the the National Historic Preservation Act has passed, and within 10 years or so of that, you're working in the trades field doing some of this kind of work. How many women were engaged at that point? And I suppose, like, what were the challenges you were you up against? Was it expected that women could work in trades and do this kind of work? Were there other people, that colleagues that you were working with? For people who, you know, now there's a lot of women in trades work. I mean, not as, not as many as there probably should be, but there still are a lot. But what was it like then? Well, I don't even think it really occurred to anybody that women would work in the trades or the traditional trades particularly. 
I know some of the uh, carpenters and stonemasons that I worked around at the Ranching Heritage Center were sort of amused by my interest in what they did, and they sort of uh, humored me, but I don't think anybody imagined that I would envision doing that kind of thing myself. Now, there were some women in architecture and historic preservation. And I really didn't get to know some of them until later, but people like uh, Penny Batchelor at uh, Independence National Park that were tremendously respected and revered figures. But uh, no, I, it was uh, really not anything that anybody much thought about as far as women working in the trades, at least when I was starting out. How did you go from an interest in trades to I mean, you know, we're, I don't want to bury the lead here, but I'm a member of the Timber Framers Guild and all of this experience, and we're going to talk about that. But what was the the method of training that you followed? Um, like, how did you go from an interest in it to actually trained hands that can do the work? Well, when I got out of school, I uh, worked for a while for the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service as an architect. And then in uh, 1979, I got a job with the National Park Service Denver Service Center as a historical architect on the North Atlantic, Mid-Atlantic team. And one of the things that we did was uh, uh, do historic structures documentation, worked on HSRs, documented buildings, did uh, construction documents for preservation projects and some uh, project supervision. And I think it was in 1982 that I was sent to Williamsport, Maryland to take a uh, workshop on masonry preservation and repointing at the uh, what was then the Williamsport Preservation Training Center, which is now the NPS Historic Preservation Training Center. And uh, I was in a class of about eight or nine National Park Service historical architects. And we spent two weeks repointing masonry on the Piper Barn at Antietam National Battlefield under the tutelage of Jim Askins, the founder of the Williamsport Preservation Training Center. And I thought, you know, I wanna do this. This is something I really, really, really wanna do. So when I got back to Denver, I called up uh, Askins and I said, "Hey, I want to I want to be in your preservation trades training program." And it got sort of quiet, and he thought about it for a minute, and he said, "Okay, Toots, when do you want to start?" <laughs> so a year or so later, I ended up uh, going to Williamsport as the uh, first female preservation trainee. And what kind of projects for people who you know aren't familiar with? I mean, obviously you mentioned the Piper Barn at Antietam, but what kind of historic projects did you work on? Any any favorites that you touched when you were at the training center? I mean, I'm sure it's hard to kind of parse it out because that kind of work is all over the place and probably impacted dozens, if not hundreds of structures. But anything that you were really proud of or that was a lot of fun to be on? Well, the unique thing about the uh, Historic Preservation Training Center is that they got to do hands-on work on projects all over the country, literally anywhere. So I got to uh, work on CCC buildings in the Pacific Northwest with the uh, Forest Service at Mount Hood. I got to work on a uh, 
reconstruction of a uh, timber frame bridge at Cuyahoga Valley National Recreation Area. I worked on the uh, Arlington House, which was a really, really interesting project. And they were all different. They were really across the spectrum and they were all challenging. One of the things that Askin said, if you ever start a new project and you're not scared to death, you don't know what you're getting into. So yeah, it was, every one of them was interesting and cool in a different way. So now you touch a lot of different trades in that experience. And, you know, I mentioned before that you're a member of the, the Timber Framers Guild. Um, is there a trade that then you kind of sunk into that that became your focus or are you the, the jack of all trades or what is there, is there a specific one that interests you the most or that you spent the most time on then eventually? Well, definitely a uh, master of none, but I've always sort of gravitated toward uh, carpentry, woodworking, joinery, timber framing. And of course, when I told Askins, I wanted to do uh wood-related stuff, the first thing he did was assign me to a bunch of masonry projects, which <laughs> wasn't really what I had in mind, but I, I really began to appreciate it more and found them very rewarding. But uh, over time, I've, I've settled more into doing more carpentry, joinery, that kind of thing. So what is, just because people might be curious, what is the Timber Framers Guild? What does it mean to be a member of it? Um, what kind of work does that involve? And do you have some timber projects that you could tell us about that you've done? Well, the Timber Framers Guild is really a remarkable organization. It uh, grew out of a, a group of people that were attempting to revive a lot of the knowledge associated with construction of early timber frame buildings after the trade had been largely perceived to have died out. And from its origins in the mid-1970s, it grew into a really thriving organization of people that both build new timber frame structures and have the knowledge and skills and background to preserve existing traditional timber frame buildings. I first heard about the Timber Framers Guild probably around 1989 or so when an itinerant timber framer came through the uh, yard at Williamsport and was talking about working on a uh, bridge project as a volunteer where the Timber Framers Guild had uh, built a new covered bridge. And I thought, boy, that's really exciting stuff. And about the same time, there was a uh, short-lived but really interesting magazine called Design Spirit. And they published an interview with Ed Levin, who was one of the uh, founding members of the Guild and one of its real luminaries. And he talked about timber framing in a way that made me really interested in finding out more. So I ended up joining the Guild and went to a guild conference in uh, Skamania out in the Columbia River Valley in Washington State in, I think, probably 1994, and thought, wow, I found my tribe. It was just a really amazing experience. So tell us, what kind of timber projects have you worked on? Have you built anything 
new from Timber and then maybe some projects that you've worked on rehabbing something that you that really spoke to you or that a historic structure with a lot of merit, I guess, in terms of rehabbing something old that was timber? Well, I worked uh, on the uh, covered bridge at uh, Cuyahoga Valley National Recreation Area, which was a reconstruction of a bridge that had washed away a few years earlier in a flood. And I worked on a number of uh, barns. Well, of course, the Piper Barn at Antietam. I actually got involved in a little bit of timber work there. Worked on uh, tobacco barns in Southern Maryland and in Virginia. And just uh, had the opportunity to be around and to study a lot of timber frame buildings during my stint in uh, New England when I lived in New Hampshire prior to coming back to Maryland. And I actually, and when I lived in New Hampshire, I had a uh, 1778 farmhouse with a really nice timber fr- timber frame barn that I did a fairly considerable amount of work on. And I know you have an interest in boats as well and things like that. Is there any overlap between the two? Is there a is there a, a, a boat builders guild too, or is there what's the what's the what's the connection between the two? Well, there are a number of organizations uh, related to preserving uh, wooden boats, and of course, we've got treasures in Maryland, like the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum, which does just amazing work. Now, of course, growing up in Lubbock, Texas, I didn't have a whole lot of opportunity to be around boats. So since I moved back to uh, Maryland, living on the uh, Chesapeake Bay, I've sort of fallen into this captivation with uh, wooden boats. And a friend and I spent the last couple of years building a uh, 14-foot skiff wooden skiff, traditional Chesapeake Bay boat design. So that's been really fun and enlightening project. In fact, it was uh, John Swain, the uh, shipwright that was uh, the uh, designer builder of the uh, Sultana that advised my friend Liz and I to build this type of skiff called an Uncle Gabe skiff from a 1930s book called Build, building boats in your own backyard. So, and that one is that one is seaworthy. You've got it out on the bay. No, it's still sitting in my shop, waiting to have the uh, hull finished off. We've sort of been waiting to get a group of people over here in the pandemic period, so we could get it raised up on another set of horses. Okay, but it's right. about ready to go out. All right. Well, uh, as as listeners know, I'm located in Maryland, so give me give me a call. I'm, I'm happy to come over. I don't know I don't know the the first thing about boat building, but I can try and lift. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we're probably going to uh, raffle it off to benefit some good local cause here. The cool. f- real fun was in the building. <laughs> awesome. That's so that's so fantastic. So let's take a quick break here, and we'll come back. Um, talk about other favorite projects maybe you worked on. Talk about the future of trades. Um, and then uh, maybe the next thing that you're going to build, and we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. Thank you to Cromwell Valley Park Council for sponsoring today's episode of PreserveCast. Cromwell Valley Park's Lime Kiln Bottom was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 2019. Listeners are encouraged to come visit these unique, restored 18th and 19th century lime kilns and log house which have been lovingly preserved for future generations. To learn more about this and other historic structures at the park, please visit 
cromwellvalleypark.org. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast today. Again, we're joined by Lisa Sasser, who is an accomplished preservation consultant. We've been talking about her career in the trades and historic architecture, working in the National Park Service, boat building, everything in between. Um, and, you know, it's always fun just to when we have someone like you who have, who's had this broad and diverse experience of working different places um, and you've worked on so many important buildings um, do you have anything else that you feel like people should hear about fun projects, maybe a project that, you know, it's funny, you said every project is supposed to scare you. Anything that was just like extreme, like the most complex project or, um, you know, just some sort of like these, these difficult watershed moments in the career or things that really, really took a lot of uh, skill and endeavor to get done. Well, it's, it's interesting. I remember in particular, uh, some of the projects that I've done as uh, workshops. I've been involved in doing uh, teaching and hands-on workshops in preservation practices and preservation philosophy for a number of years. And sometime when you get out in the field with a uh, group of people that you've only just met and you're looking at this building that's got all these problems and trying to figure out how you're going to tackle it what everybody's skill levels and comfort levels are. You can get in some challenging situations. And I remember one time I was leading a workshop uh, to repair, restore a uh, vernacular half dugout log building at uh, um, Bighorn Canyon National Recreation Area. And let me stop you there. What is a vernacular? Because some people may not know this, and I think I only know half of it. What is a vernacular dugout cap? So what is that? So there's, it's dug down or describe what that is. It's dug down in a bank on one end. It was a log barn, small log barn. And okay. of course, the uh, logs that were in ground contact had completely rotted out. Right. So we had to pretty much pick the whole thing up. And one of the challenges inherent in doing some of these kinds of things is I met with the people in the workshop in the morning and we talked through the history and the philosophy and why we were going to restore it. And one of the guys came up to me, they were all guys afterward and said, wow, that's really interesting. Thanks for uh, telling us all that stuff. Now, when, when is the guy that's teaching the class getting here? So I had some of that from time to time. I bet. Wow. And and then you're trying on the fly to figure out how you're going to do this, how you're going to get it up in the air, how you're going to get the logs out, the new logs in. And there was another one at uh, Petersburg, Virginia, where we had a uh, brick retaining wall at this uh, cemetery that over time had pivoted on its foundation and was leaning at a really severe angle. So we didn't have time to dismantle the whole thing. So I thought about it and said, you know, we can dig out behind this, relieve the pressure on it and jack it back up into place, which is what we did. We built these jacking, this jacking system, jacked it up, got it back level and repointed it, stabilized it, stabilized footings. And on the last day of class, it was time to let off the jacks. 
So I turned around and I looked at everybody in the class and I said, who wants to start to let off the jacks? So they all backed away. So I had to go let the jacks off. And I'll tell you, I was more than a little nervous, but everything held. I was going to say, well, we're interviewing you right now. So clearly you made it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, that, that is, um, yeah, that, that, that's quite the story. I'd love to see pictures of that. Um, so, um, so historic trades in general, you've obviously um, worked in a lot of different aspects of this. You've done masonry, you've done a lot of um, work in carpentry, timber framing, boat building, you name it. Um, w when you think about historic trades right now and the future of historic trades, what gives you hope and... Uh, or maybe maybe say maybe we'll go this way actually what concerns you and what would you like to see change and then maybe we'll talk about the the hopeful side but what's what's concerning about trades work right now and and how would you like to see that change well I, it's always concerning that there will be a supply of people with the skills the knowledge and the sensitivity to work on historic resources and indeed to continue to build the kinds of places that will become just as valued and just as cherished over time. Anecdotally, it seems as though one of the most common questions asked of state historic preservation offices is where can you find people to do this kind of work? And how can you get people together to locate those kinds of people and how do you keep replenishing the supply as you know a lot of the people that have you know reached the pinnacle of their particular trades or are, are aging and, and i used to like go to a guild conference and it was notable the amount of gray hair that was that was present so yeah it's it's a perennial challenge to make young people aware that this is a viable career choice and something that can be immensely rewarding as a career. Is there any aspect of what you see going on right now that makes you somewhat optimistic? I mean, it's easy for a bunch of tradespeople to get together and wring their hands about the future of trades. I think that that's is, is that that's normally like at least one workshop at every trades conference where everyone gets together and wrings <laughs> their hand about the future. But um, are there things that you see that make you actually pretty happy or optimistic about where all this is headed? I'm extremely optimistic. And everywhere I go and everywhere I talk to young people, they're excited, they're interested, they're starting to realize that this is something that's really cool and really interesting. And they're looking for opportunities to get hands-on training, to be involved in the trades, to be involved in projects. And of course, the work that you all are doing with uh, the National Park Service on the traditional trades apprenticeship program is, is a big, big part of this. And kind of a breakthrough that I've been hoping for many years to see something like this come along. Yeah, it's a it's a complex piece. And we've interviewed people on this this 
preserve uh, this uh, this uh, podcast all across the globe about how it's done in different parts of the world and trying to pick and find the best pieces and um, you know the Brits have a piece and you know and the Australians are talking about stuff now too and threatened trades and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's definitely you know it's something on the horizon and I think it's also exciting to be inter- able to interview a woman about this because obviously getting more women in the trades. I mean, you've seen, I guess you've seen that change. Is that a sort of a hopeful, optimistic piece? There's a lot more women doing this work than there were. Oh, I guess, and when I you, love it. When you, broke the, when you broke the glass ceiling with your trowel. <laughs> well, and it's so exciting. And the uh, level of skill and mastery that's being displayed by a lot of women in the field now is just breathtaking. Somebody like uh, Amy McCauley Harrington at uh, Mount Vernon and an upcoming episode. Yes. Wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Glad you, glad, glad you, you didn't even know that, but yeah, we're, we're working on getting her in the field right now. And, uh, and I think she's, well, we'll interview her, but she's all about hand tools and no power tools. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's talk Mm -hmm. about mastery. Um, That's, that's something else. Well, there's, there are really some just outstanding women in the field now. So it's really encouraging and kind of humbling to see just how, how brilliant some of them are. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully we get to the point where it's, it's not remarkable because it's just, you know, they're, they're just as commonplace and, uh, and as um, respected in the field as anyone else. And I think we're slowly getting there. But I mean, when you look at just trades in general, there's still just not as many women as there probably should be. Um, so there's, there's still work to be done, but you're right. It is, there's just so many good, good stories out there and, and hopefully we can bring more of them here and, you know, you're well, one I think of the, good the stories traditional too. trades have a slight advantage over the uh, construction trades generically in that women have found these uh, places where they're particularly respected and valued and really are working at a very visible level. Yeah. Yeah. And as an organization, we just hired a female trades person as well to lead our campaign for historic trades who was running. And she is outstanding. I've had the opportunity to get to know her through the Preservation Trades Network over the years. And she's she's wonderful. Yeah. We're talking about Natalie Henshaw. We'll have to have her on on PreserveCast at some point, too. She's going to lead a conversation about women in trades, I think, for um, for Women's History Month, too, which will be exciting. Um, So. Speaking of exciting things, what any other what are the projects on the horizon? I know you're always fiddling with something. You got you can't keep your hands still. You got to shop. I'm sure COVID has given you a lot of time to to whittle things down. So, what are you are you building a yacht? Are you building another house? What's what what do you have cooking in the workshop? Well, a couple of things I'm excited about. Uh, hopefully, in uh, 2021 and onward. Uh, we'll be able to get back to in-person teaching for some of the workshops that I've been involved with, the uh, the uh, Vanishing Treasures program and the Guiding Principles for Field-Based Historic Preservation. So we've been doing some uh, offline work to up the curriculum game a little bit on that and bring in some really exciting new people into the teaching cadre. But uh, locally, I've got a cool project coming up here. Right here in Rock Hall, there is a uh, arc boat awaiting salvage and restoration. And for those who don't know what an arc boat is, it is a uh, Chesapeake Bay, sort of a floating uh, 
It's kind of like a houseboat that was used by the uh, watermen up until the 1950s when they would tow these uh, sort of scows with a little cabin on top up the creeks and they would moor them there or pull them up on dry land for the duration of the fishing season. And a few old recluses actually went and lived in their art boats. And at one time there were hundreds of them in the Chesapeake Bay, but now it's estimated that there may be less than 10 extant ones. And the art boat in Rock Hall is the Captain Merrickton Carter, Merrickton Carter Fishing Shanty which was found on the property of the Black Duck Inn, which is a local B&B owned by Kate Johnson. So Kate allowed the town to move and restore the Ark boat back in the 1990s, but it's since fallen into major disrepair again. And she's entered into an agreement with the town in, under which she will regain custody of the art boat. And I will be working with a team of people to restore that within the uh, Secretary of Interior standards and get it back on view. And once again, available to be appreciated by visitors and Rock Hall residents. Well, that is very so, cool. That is that's uh, gonna be we will fun. definitely have to chronicle that and come out and see that in progress. That sounds really neat. And, um, are you going to spend any time trying, you're going to spend a night on it once it's done just to see what it's like to live in the old ark boat? That might be fun. There, <laughs> and in fact, we've talked about this as much in the way that uh, people are doing B&Bs with old Airstream campers and the like. It would be really fun to have a little flotilla of ark boats and people could come spend the night in. There you go. I, th I think people would be into it. I'm sure there's some people listening that would come and do that. Um, if people want to find out more about you, they want to hire you to do something, they want, they need a trainer, they need their ARC boat restored, um, how can they get in touch? Well, I hate to say that my uh, website is woefully out of date and like the cobbler's children having no shoes, I've never got around to updating it, but I'm easily reachable through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all of those kinds of things. And they can just find you at Lisa Sasser? That's correct. All right, cool. And this is normally the most difficult question, and I'm sure it'll be difficult for you given your career, but what is your favorite historic site or place? Wow, that's a hard one. <laughs> I, uh, having had the good fortune of traveling so much to so many remarkable places. I think that I find that uh, right now the Chesapeake Bay has just completely captivated me with its natural beauty and history and that it's just such a really cool place to be. Well, you can't go wrong with the Chesapeake Bay. Fantastic answer and such a fun interview to be able to hear from you, learn from you, um, and uh, we'll have to have you back on as the ARC project gets underway. I think people will be interested in that. I'll keep you posted, and it's been great talking with you, Nick. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. PreserveCast would like to thank McDo Preservation LLC for sponsoring today's episode. McDo specializes in program development and evaluation, long-range planning, and capacity building for nonprofit and government clients. To learn more about McDo's data and community-driven approach and commitment to equity, 
visit mcdo.com. That's M-C-D-O-U-X.com. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.